Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And today we're discussing the film Blade Runner. And joining us today is our special guest, Bill Marsilli. So welcome, Bill. Hey, Thanks Bill. for joining us. Thank you. Hello. We're very excited yes. to talk to you tonight, Bill. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment world? Sure. I am a professional screenwriter and fledgling director as well. I got started in 1992. But my main claim to fame for your listeners or whatever would be that I co-wrote uh, with my pal Terry Rossio a movie called Deja Vu. Yeah. It started Denzel Washington, came out in 2006. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that movie. And we're we're going to yes. talk about Deja Vu Thank a little you. bit later. But what was your path for your career? How did you get started? I was a drama major at NYU, actually. I'm oh, okay. a British School of the Arts grad. And uh, I had been pursuing an acting career. And that's what I studied in college. And NYU and, and many drama schools frequently, um, at, at least back in the previous millennium when I was in college, um, they would teach you everything about Shakespeare and Moliere and Chekhov and American stage standard speech. And you had to take ballet classes twice a week and learn your, your Stanislavski. And uh, a headshot, what's that? <laughs> right. You, you would graduate school and be like, now what? Probably not so much with schools here in California or where I'm speaking to you from. But uh, back, back in the day, uh, certainly in New York, there was a lot about, a lot of the training was about how to be an artist and very little about how to be a working artist. So like an awful lot of drama grads, my friends and I, kind of blanked at each other and uh, formed a theater company in New York. <laughs> Great. Uh, to, to be completely, to complete, be completely honest so that they don't get mad at me, they formed the theater company <laughs> and invited me to join not long after. Uh, it was called the, the Bad Neighbors Theater Company in the East Village in New York yeah. City. I guess one of the things I can tell you that, that might be a, a, a cool insight for your listeners, at least I hope so, it was turned out to be great training for, yeah. for yeah. feature film writing. Oh, cool. Because a lot of the demands of no budget off, yeah. off, off Broadway theater <laughs> are actually very much like the demands of big budget Hollywood studio films. Interesting. Which would seem to be counterintuitive, but yeah. let me lay out a case if you agree with it. Sure. <laughs> we didn't have money to pay royalties on plays or anything yeah so we were writing original material awesome we couldn't afford advertising <laughs> <laughs> so we depended on word of mouth which a lot a lot of blockbuster films do but also we found ourselves writing cool plays with catchy titles at the time the only free advertising you could get really was every sunday the new york times in the sunday section would print the new york theater guide which for free they would list every show that was running anywhere in New York City, wow. including off-off-Broadway, no-budget theater. It's awesome. They would list the title of your play and a one-sentence description <laughs> <laughs> or logline, as we yeah, call it here. Yeah, that's really great practice. One of the people who came to see the show was the mother of this girl who was trying to date, and she was, she was a literary agent. And she said to me, you know, you really ought to take a crack at a screenplay. And she was right, because it's, it's not like I grew up in the theater or yeah. anything like that. Right. I was really trying to get away with writing movies on stage. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great training ground, really. Yeah. On the heels of that, I was looking at 30 and thinking, oh my God, it's now or never. So I uh, I spent some time writing a, a spec script. Yeah. And I did what all the books tell you to do, but nobody ever actually seems to do. <laughs> um, I spent like six months just coming up with a good idea. Yeah. And a side note, um, the, the, for a new writer trying to break in to the, the screenwriting game, a great concept is the most critically important yeah. aspect of a screenplay. Uh, even if they don't think you wrote it well, if it's a really cool idea, 
for Adam Sandler or something, yeah. they will buy it off of you and throw five other writers at it. Yeah. You know, the script I ended up writing was called The Invisible Choir, and it was basically a Catholic James Bond movie uh, <laughs> about a, a secret agent nun, a spy who works for the Pope. Oh, right? my God. Yeah, and people weren't used to reading screenplays about with a, a nun drop kicking bad guys through a stained glass window and hopping onto a helicopter, you know? So it, it got me a lot of attention. Yeah. Then I showed it to a number of trusted friends and being at, at Tisch in mm -hmm. NYU, many of my, my buddies were not merely actors, but several of them were also in the film department. Yeah. Right? And right. after graduation, some of them went on to be script readers. Some of them went on to low-level development um, positions at, at New York film companies or production companies. One of those folks was, was my pal Kevin Ryan, who was actually a friend of a friend at the time. And he was a freelance script reader for MGM in New York. Wow. And he read the script and he said, this is better than 95% of what my bosses give me. Can I show this to them? And I said, yes, you Obviously. may. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's when things started to take off. MGM did not end up buying the script, but that created a heat around it. Yeah. And MGM began recommending me to agents awesome. and recommending agents to me. Nice. The point of like, you had a connection that you found out could help you get the script read by someone who might be able to get it made, but like you had to have the script ready. So like... You could have all these connections and opportunities, but you have to make sure whatever you're working on is, you know, you have something to show that proves you're capable of doing the job. I think so. I'll con confess this at, at my peril to, <laughs> is that I, I, I tend to, even when I'm on assignment or on a deadline, I tend to ask for more, more time or, or turn in things late because yeah. I'm terrified of turning something in that's not as good as I could have yeah. made it. right. And I'm especially terrified of them reading it and saying, this isn't as good as he could have made it. Let's get somebody else. He yeah. clearly doesn't care. Right. Yeah. The good part about that is that unless there's a film crew waiting on a set, tapping right. its feet for the pages, usually they'll, they're only too happy to get an extra week or two of free work out of you. Right. <laughs> if clearly you're in a white heat working yeah. on the screenplay. But if you're like, I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to be turning it in. The, the fourth season of Stranger Things just dropped and I just had to watch. <laughs> that doesn't earn you a lot of grace in yeah. the halls of you know, Hollywood. Right. There's so little that a writer can control. Yeah. Even when you're a professional with a, a career, you can write the most fantastic screenplay that you know how to write. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing the studio says is now we need a director. And the first thing the director might do is say, I've always wanted to make a movie in Japan and then fire you and rewrite it for some oh Japan, God. right? <laughs> uh, but the one thing that you can control is the quality of your own work yeah. and your diligence and how much heart, soul, talent, and thought you put into mm -hmm. it. And one of the things that is actually a benefit or an asset about being a new writer, those, those of you listening who are writing screenplays while working day jobs or night jobs, I've been there. The cool thing is you can spend the 11 months getting your script re ready because you're not on some deadline. Yeah. You right. don't have somebody tapping his feet or calling you and saying, so where is it? When can we see pages? Take advantage of that now because you might not get it again. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's really good advice. So perhaps we can talk about Deja Vu for just a minute. Yes. Sure. So this is a movie that I loved. I saw when it came out. And it's a time travel movie. Is it difficult to sort of plan out where the story goes with something like that? I mean, I don't want to spoil the movie because it is good. I want people yeah. to see it. Well, thank but you. It is complicated. Yeah, I'll I'll preface this by saying uh, your mileage may vary, but I worked on that script for seven years before we wow, sold it. Wow, yeah. Wow. Now, mind you, sometimes some of that was... I don't mean I that every I was doing eight, eight hours at the keyboard every day for seven years. At times, sometimes I would get another assignment and I would mm -hmm. set deja vu aside. At one point, though, I did become blocked yeah. on the script. And before I get to that, I, I suppose to, to offer a little bit of history, um, I had broken in with a another project called Jingle that uh, was a Christmas comedy that um, I had told I had met Terry Rossio 
in a writer's chat room on America Online. Awesome. <laughs> if anybody remembers what those were. He and his then partner, Ted Elliott, wanted to work with me. Uh, and I told them about this children's book that I thought would make a really wicked Christmas comedy. And they they agreed. We went after the book rights together. I developed the story with their, their guidance. And uh, then they took me on a tour of the studios to pitch it. And TriStar said yes. That was how I broke in. After two drafts of that script for TriStar, it went into turnaround there. We showed it to Sandra Bullock because she had read the Secret Agent Nun script. Okay. Nice. And uh, and even though she didn't want to do another action movie because she had just done Speed 2 Cruise okay, Control yeah. and she didn't want to go anywhere. She just didn't want to go anywhere near action. Yeah. For, yeah. But she liked the script and was like, what else does Bill have? So we sent her the Christmas comedy. And even though there wasn't a role in it for her, she came aboard as a producer. Awesome. And took it to Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers summarily replaced me with another writer, which uh, crushed me at the time. Yeah. And Terry called me in the aftermath of that and said, what do you want to do next? I, when I told him that I wanted to write a spec script this time, I didn't want to get nibbled to death by notes. And I, I think I told him I wanted to write a love story. It was really kind of sweet. Unsolicited, he started sending me ideas for screenplays that he'd had. Yeah. The idea being that I would write it and then he and Ted would produce it as they, right. as they had with the other thing. And I was like, thank God, at least somebody in Hollywood still wants to work with me. Yeah. At the time, I was still living in, in New York. Okay. Something I said reminded him of a one-page treatment that he had called, at the time, his title for it was Prior Conviction. Mm. And it was six paragraphs, but it was about an investigator in the near future whose girlfriend gets killed. And he uses this device, this time window, to watch the last week of her life. For the film, we actually shortened it to four and a half days, okay. so roughly. We didn't need a full week to tell our story. But uh, he's using this device to to watch the last few days of his girlfriend's life and try and figure out who killed her. And in the last sentence of Terry's treatment, he indicated that later they, the, the hero then would somehow use the machine to actually go back in time and try and save her. And as he was telling me this, I started getting really excited. I really loved the idea. I was like... I think it's great. I love it. But um, what if, what if he falls in love with her while he's watching the last few days of her life? That could be so cool. The first time he sees her, she'll be at her autopsy. I've never yeah. seen a couple meet like that. Yeah, right? A, right. And, and it started this, like, thank you. It started this creative brush fire for yeah. me where every idea started prompting two or three others. And he was like, go run with it. Great. He also let me change the title. And it, to, to Ben's question, yeah, it was a real bear to outline. And I wrote up like a 27-page outline. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it took many months to write the outline because one of the things that uh, about many time travel movies is that they're a great opportunity for a writer to show off as far yeah. as plot goes. Yeah. That you can do double and triple backflips with the plot. There's a, a movie that I just watched recently, though, that came out several years ago called Predestination with Ethan Hawke. Yeah, I remember it's that. It's an adaptation of a very well-known Robert Heinlein story called All You Zombies. Oh. And it's it's brilliant. And it's this story that keeps backflipping on itself over and over again. And it's like, how the, by the time you get to the end, it's like, how the hell did he plot this out? It's supposed to have taken forever. Right? Yeah. In my case, it did take a long time. One of the things that I thought very early on was, okay, if it's going to be a, a story that features time travel and I want it to be as realistic as possible and set present day, then realistically any time machine that exists in present day would be hooked up to a mile-wide particle accelerator and cost about a $10 billion a minute to run or whatever. Right, right. right. And I started reading... Uh, at the time, I was living in New York, so I went out to visit the Brookhaven National Lab on Long Island. Uh, that was really cool. And they recreated that part of, parts of that particle accelerator in the movie. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Wow. I, I did some reading about the, the physics, the accepted physics of time travel. Yeah. And the prevailing belief right now under Einsteinian physics is that traveling time travel to the past is possible without violating relativity but even though it's possible you can't change the past 
Yeah. Anything you're going to do, you already did. <laughs> right? Right. Uh, which is how you get cool time travel things like the grandfather paradox or yeah. there's exactly. any number of cool YouTube videos mm -hmm. or Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about the, the ways that things backflip. Yeah. In a way, what was cool about that was once I accepted as a given, all right, then all the clues that he's going to find at the beginning are going to turn every time he's going to try and change something, he's going to dovetail. It has to dovetail perfectly with yeah. what already happened. So at times Denzel's accidentally leaving the same clues that yeah. he found at the crime scene four days earlier. Yeah, when he goes back in time. So, and that was a bear to plot all those yeah. things out and make them all line up. It also was kind of cool because in a way, the villain in the movie is time. Yeah. Right. Time is what keeps outwitting Denzel. Every time he thinks he's got this figured out, how he can change something. So the suspense of the movie is, at one, there's one critical scene, a little over, roughly halfway into the movie or so, where Denzel's character Doug is arguing with Denny, the the physicist played by Adam Goldberg, over whether or not it's possible to change the past. And Goldberg's character lays out what I was just telling you about: you can't change the past; it's physically possible, impossible. Anything you're going to do, you already did. And Denzel says, "Well, what if there's more to it than physics?" And they actually start talking about faith, which is something that I wanted to, to put in there. Yep. And Denny says, all right, you mean something spiritual? Look at it this way. God's mind's already made up about this. <laughs> you know, you can't change it. Yeah. And the suspense of the movie is which of them's right. You know? Yeah. Can you change the past or not? And until the end of the movie, until as close to the end of the movie as we could get it, there's still a chance that the girl could end up dead, Denzel could end up dead, the fairy could still explode, yeah, um, and everything could turn out to be exactly the way it started if if he's not incredibly resourceful and somehow manages to outwit time, you know? Yeah. Right. How's that for a big, long, full-of-itself answer? <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> One of the things that some of your folks might be interested in is that I had written six episodes of Courage the Cowardly Dog on oh, Cartoon yes. Network. Yeah. And the, the reason I bring it up isn't because I, I hope I'm not trying to, like, shoehorn it into our conversation. Oh, no, no, no. But, I actually I love but, that cartoon. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. Sometimes I lecture at, at, at college campuses, yeah. and I had an experience not too long ago where the instructor introduced me as one of the co-writer of Deja Vu. Yeah. And the students seemed reasonably, okay, they were attentive. Nobody yeah. was rude. Nobody was pulling out their phone and checking Tinder or whatever. <laughs> but uh, but it was like, there was a certain room level. Yeah. And then one of the college students in the back of the room raised his hand and said, I just checked IMDb. You wrote Courage the Cowardly Dog? <laughs> and everybody sat up and went, what? <laughs> like, I wrote a dog cartoon that's not as impressive as Denzel Washington, and <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a cool experience. The, yeah. The series was produced out of New York. Okay. My, my good friend David Cohen was the head writer on it, and he, oh, cool. he brought me on. Uh, David was later, later best man at my wedding, and awesome. we're, we're awesome. good friends to this day. But um, we wrote these little 11-minute horror movies, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which... One of my pet phrases that I came up with a few years ago, by the, by the time you're, you're a certain age, you should have at least one wise saying of your own, right? <laughs> and mine is, God's smarter than I am. <laughs> so these things that happen in my life, it's like, what was that for? Why didn't we cut that scene? It'll pay off 20 years later. Yeah. Working on Courage the Cowardly Dog was great training for writing short films because yeah. it's an 11-minute self-contained story. Uh, and we were writing these little horror movies. Yeah. But I'm meeting people now who are in their 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 twenties who who are telling me that they trauma they I traumatized them. <laughs> <laughs> it was an intense cartoon. It was very good, but I do I still like think of some of the imagery in it. And oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was good though. I'd be remiss if if I didn't uh, at least acknowledge that part of my career. It was yes. great fun and still resonates to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do want to ask, so you currently have a film that's kind of going around the film festival circuit, right? A short film, yes. Yeah, a short film. Can you tell us a little more about like getting into the film festival circuit, um, how you build buzz for your film, things like that? You're kind to ask. Thank you. It's um, it's a an eight-minute 
film called Gunpoint. And um, I won't go on too much about it, largely because it's not yet available online. Yeah, okay. Mm. If we had made it available, then it would immediately get disqualified for number of the festivals right. where yeah. we're, we're still waiting to, to premiere. Yeah. But um, I shot it during the pandemic. It's kind of interesting. There was a, a, a group called the the advocates that was uh, that had a, a series of um, film grants and I I pitched an idea to them they liked it they bankrolled a short that uh, I wrote directed and I was, I'm actually also in it oh nice um, <laughs> NYU drama days right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we shot it during the pandemic they put it out on a, the festival circuit I'm working in conjunction with them the first thing I would suggest to anybody who wants to get out on the festival circuit the first thing they'll discover anyway by googling uh there's a website called film freeway one word film freeway i believe it's dot com but you'll find it anyway if i'm wrong it is the central hub okay the clearinghouse where all of the film festivals are registered there and it is a one-stop shop where you create your film project you upload it onto the I'm not, I'm not being made to say any of this, right? Oh, it's all right. You upload your film, details about yourself as a filmmaker, who's involved, a, a trailer if you have one, production stills. Yeah. And, uh, and then you can click and submit to whichever film festivals you want and pay the submission, submission fee online. And awesome. that festival, they don't have to write to you and say, okay, now please, e please mail us a disc or yeah. something. Right. They just go to your page click, download, they view the film and make their decision and let you know. Wow. That's it's cool. invaluable. It yeah. really is. Very cool. But it's winning a number of awards. Yeah. So that's really cool too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, well done. So um, do you have any moments from your career that are either a favorite moment or a moment that are just like really unbelievable where you're like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for a living? I do. And I'm so grateful to be asked that because this gives me a chance in a public forum to tell a story that involves my parents. Oh, cool. Yeah. When Deja Vu was, was filming, it was in production, the time machine set, the exterior of the time machine facility was built at uh, studios in uh, Downey, California, which is like an hour, maybe an hour, okay. 15 minutes south of Los Angeles. Right. And my parents had flown out to visit. And I said, hey, let's, I want to bring it down to the set. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it was a fairly big production day. There were lots of extras on the set because Tony populated that with a lot of military guys who were guarding the facility and, yeah. and, and all of this stuff. Denzel w was there as well. And we sat off to the side at one point and watched Denzel shoot a scene with Val Kilmer. And my folks got to meet Tony, who gave him a big bear hug, God rest his soul. But towards the end of the day, we'd been there about six or seven hours. Even though I had, you know, met and spent some time with Denzel in conference rooms, you know, talking about the story, going through the script or whatever, right. and I'd seen him on set a couple of times previously, I was a little trepidatious about, you know, walking up to him or saying, "Hi, can you, will you talk to my parents, please?" Yeah. <laughs> or anything like that. Right. But at one point, they were between setups, and instead of going back to his trailer or whatever, Denzel sat on a on a chair outside the time machine set. And was just kind of sitting there and waiting for the next thing. And my dad said, I want to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And, and I was like, okay, um, yeah. hang back here. Let me see. I don't want to yeah. bother the man. Right. Also being a screenwriter, um, I also don't want to get kicked off the set. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked up to him and <laughs> actually, if I'm going to accurately relay the story, I walked up and I said, Denzel, and he looked up at me and said, hi, Bill Marsili. And he was like, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I don't know. He meets 200 people on yeah, a film set, of course. Know. I'm yeah. only one of the writers, and I'm the one who didn't write the big pirate movie. So <laughs> side note, when he's not working with me, uh, Terry Rossio wrote Shrek, Aladdin, Pirates of the Caribbean, oh his story credit on Godzilla versus Kong. Right. <laughs> so I like to think that I'm the John Lennon to his much more popular Paul McCartney. <laughs> but he might actually be George Michael and I might be other guy from Wham. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to Denzel and he was really very nice. And, and he turned 
and coincidentally ended up facing my parents who were 30 feet away. And I say, and those are my parents, actually. <laughs> and he said, oh, and he waved to them and they, they, they came over. And we told him that they were they were visiting from Delaware. Yeah. He said, oh, I know Delaware. I've been there many times. And he was telling them how he'd been to Bethany Beach many times. And my folks have a place not far from there. Nice. And they started talking about their favorite seafood restaurants. <laughs> and he's he's talking about what's that place, Lazy Susan's, where it's all you can eat, but they try and fill you up on bread. <laughs> <laughs> and they're talking about this. Uh, and here's the moment that you <laughs> to answer your question, right? While they were talking, I'm watching them, and I just had this absolute out-of-body experience where I felt my brain float back yeah. a few feet behind my head, and I'm watching yeah. this, and I'm like, and I just found myself thinking, I'm standing here watching Denzel Washington talking to my mom and dad about soft shell crabs <laughs> in front of a time machine. <laughs> I've had dreams that weren't this yeah. bizarre and this is actually happening. <laughs> right. and, and finally to, 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 to wrap that up though, I, I, I really have to say the reason I'll be grateful to him for the rest of my life, more than once I gave him an out. Mm. Yeah. Like I was saying, well, they, you know, they would wrap up a some story or come to the end of a thought. Yeah. And I would say something, I said something like, well, thanks so much. And then he, and then he went on talking to them. That's awesome. He could have easily said, well, thanks. Yeah, I actually, I'm, I'm kind of busy yeah. right now. But he was so kind. And so I will forever be in debt to him for that. That's awesome. That's very cool. It's always good to hear, you know, when someone's that big of a star, like that they're still like, you know, just a nice person nice. and yeah. generally want to talk to people. And yeah, that's great to hear. Well, we have one more question for you before we move on and talk about the movie. So what advice do you have for people who want to break into Hollywood with either screenwriting or anything? What advice do you have for people who just want to get involved in the industry? Certainly if you're a, a writer, this applies, but perhaps it applies to, to anyone. Whatever you're doing, even if it's not the thing that you ultimately want to do yet, do it as well as you can and better than you have to. Go above and beyond. In my own case, it was make this script as good as I can. Mm -hmm. Don't just write a first draft. Say, I don't need to show this to anybody. I know perfection when I write it, you know, and then send it to people. Have some degree of creative humility, or maybe it's even creative hubris. Say, okay, this is merely good, but I'm capable of genius. It's, it's This doesn't reflect my genius yet. You know, come at it either way you want. Yeah. But do the best thing that you, the best job that you can. That's number one. After I finished my screenplay, I asked everybody I knew if anybody they knew knew anyone in the film industry, wanted the names of people in the film industry who might be willing to talk to me and give me advice. Yeah. Yeah. Which may have been me lucking into a, a bit of a golden ticket because people in the film industry are used to being asked for favors. Yeah. Please read my script. Please introduce me to someone. Please tell your agent about me or whatever. It's a pain in the ass to be asked for a favor. Yeah. But it's flattering to be asked for advice. I flew out to Los Angeles for about a week. It took me forever to work up the courage to call some of those people. Yeah. And the phone calls, after the first phone call, most of them went like this. And it was a real epiphany for me. I would call and say I would get this development person online. I'd say, hello, is this some so-and-so? And they'd go, yes. And I'd say, hi, uh, I'm a, a screenwriter from New York. And uh, my friend Lee so-and-so, you know, recommended you to me. And I could already hear them rolling their eyes. And some of them would go, yeah. And I would say, he speaks very highly of you. And I'm calling because I'm going to be coming to Los Angeles for about a week. And I don't want to lob scripts at you or become your best friend from hell or anything. But if you could spare perhaps 15 minutes, I would really welcome the chance to, to meet with you and ask more about your tastes and yeah. perhaps your company so that I don't waste your time with what, something if, that I'm writing now if it's not good for you. And more often than not, the person on the other end of the line would go, oh, you just, <laughs> you just want to talk? Well, sure. I mean, that's fine. Actually, what are you doing for lunch? 
that day. Awesome. Yeah. And I ended up getting about 14 meetings that way. That's cool. Whereas if I had called them and said, hi, my friend Lee says you're great. Would you please yeah. read my script? Asking a stranger to read your script is kind of like walking up to saying somebody saying, hi, you don't know me, but will you help me move this weekend? Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> right. you're asking for two hours of their time reading yeah. it, perhaps an hour or more preparing notes on it, and then a half hour to an hour talking you off the ledge over the phone when they yeah. tell you what they actually <laughs> thought of your script. Right. right. And then they have to get on the phone and tell Lee why they broke your heart. Yeah. <laughs> friendly. So when I met with many of those people, I did my best to ask them smart questions, yeah. not just how do I get an agent or something like that, which I don't mean to sound dumb about it because we all had that question, right? Yeah. True. But one of the questions that I, I noticed people particularly responded to, I would say, thank you for telling me about you know, what you're looking for here at the company. But also, I realize that people move around. And what about your tastes particularly? Is there ever anything that you wish you could have gotten your bosses to go for? Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Now you're asking them about themselves, yeah. right? Right. right? They know they're not just a, a Rolodex card with hair. You're treating them like a human being, yeah. right? And it is important information because that person, I have a script right now that's in turnaround and it stands a very strong chance of being pulled out of turnaround by somebody who read it at a company that's now defunct, has a new job somewhere else and yeah. told her new boss about it. And I just went into this much bigger company than the one she used to work at. Yeah. People do move around. And if you stay in touch with them, that could be really helpful. Let's get to our featured film. Today we're discussing the 1982 sci-fi drama Blade Runner. It was written by Hampton Fancher and David Webb Peoples. It was based on the novel by Philip K. Dick and it was directed by Ridley Scott, and it stars Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, and Sean Young. So, Susan, before we get into it, can you give us a quick breakdown? What is this movie about? Yes. So, first, this movie takes place in November 2019, which is crazy to think about now. But um, it follows the story of Rick Deckard, who... He is a former something called Blade Runner, which is someone who hunts hunts down like rogue replicant humans, essentially. They're making these replicant humans to essentially be slaves in an off-Earth off colony. Um, and his job is when they escape and get to Earth or just, you know, uprise in general, one of his jobs is to terminate them. Um, there are four of these replicants that have made it to Earth from the colony um, in an attempt to uh, extend their life because they're also designed to only live for four years. There are four of them that want to try to fix that. So they're here on Earth trying to find their creator to help them live longer. So he is tasked with terminating them. And also there's a fifth replicant named Rachel who was created by the company, but she was created with a lot of false memories. Uh, the creator implanted his niece's memories in her. So she doesn't know that she's not a human being. So he's also, she eventually realizes what she is and she leaves the company and escapes and they can't find her. So he's also tasked with terminating her at some point. Um, but eventually he falls in love with her. There's also the question, is he a human at all or not? But yeah, it all takes place in this very dystopian society that again, isn't supposed to be November, 2019, which is crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, Los Angeles, California in 2019, I should say. So <laughs> Bill, Bill, you chose Blade Runner. Why did you choose this film for us to discuss tonight? Blade Runner. When you hear what I have to say about it later, this this might sound like I'm trying to be cute, but I'm, this is quite true. Blade Runner inspired me to study screenwriting at NYU. Yeah. That after seeing Blade Runner, I signed up for screenwriting classes at NYU, which as a drama major, you're not entitled to do. Oh. I had to I had to do some begging in the yeah. in the bursar's office or whatever. It came out the June 1982, mm -hmm. if my memory serves. And I went to see that movie by the director of Alien at that time, Ridley, had, yeah. had it been his previous film. Harrison Ford certainly couldn't have been a bigger star. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I'm watching this movie with these absolutely amazing visual effects. Yes. Yes. The Vangelis score is ethereal. It holds up. Uh, yeah. The, it's got a terrific cast. The set design is unbelievable incredible uh, on every physical production level uh it was really a, a marvel mm -hmm. i think the movie falls apart eight minutes in okay. interesting and then it keeps falling apart okay 
<laughs> yes. Uh, by the way, side note, this is cinematic blasphemy. I, 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 I thoroughly acknowledge it. It's probably the biggest sci-fi movie of all time. Yeah, I, and, 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 and in case any of you listening or, or need this pressure release revalve, I will say it for you. You wrote Deja Vu and you're ragging on Blade Runner? <laughs> what? Yes. Yes, I, I, I know. All right, Bill, let's uh, that, hear it. That doesn't, that doesn't mean I think it's better. Okay, there's stuff wrong with deja vu that nobody's noticed yet. I can't believe Tony got away with the beginning of the movie. Uh, it begins with a worker at the Tyrell Corporation named Leon, mm-hmm. who is being questioned by uh, another Blade Runner. Right. Because what we will learn later is that these replicants have been trying to infiltrate the Tyrell Corporation because the guy at the top of the pyramid is literally a gigantic pyramid. Yes. Tyrell. Uh, created them and they're trying to get back to the guy who created them because they only have a four-year lifespan and they want more life right and rather than tell this part of it chronologically this is something that you learn shortly after scene one Mm -hmm. uh and you alluded it to to it susan in in your description these replicants uh were uh, escaped from an off-world colony they slaughtered 23 people stole a shuttle killed the crew brought it to earth the shuttle was found drifting off the coast uh, of california and now they are in los angeles uh trying to infiltrate the tyrell corporation so scene one this fellow leon is suspecting of being suspected of being one of these replicants basically robots made out of flesh right the blade runner has this thing called a void conf machine it's very special machine that he aims it at the the eye of the 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 pupil of the the replicant or the suspect and he's asking him a series of questions that are meant to determine whether this suspect has any human empathy at all yeah because one of the things that distinguishes a replicant is that they do not have empathy they don't have emotions the same way humans do at least they're not supposed to right right and he's asking these questions and Leon is evading the questions and the questioning starts to get hotter. And eventually Leon pulls out a gun and literally blows the cop through a wall. Yeah. Literally the wall shatters and the the chair goes shooting across the back wall of the opposite room. (laughs) Scene after that, uh, Harrison Ford, Rick Deckard is at a noodle bar and the pouring rain and another cop named Gaff comes and approaches him. And says, the boss wants to see you. Bryant wants to see you. And Harrison Ford says, you got the wrong guy, pal. And he doesn't want to do it. But Gaff sort of twists his arm. And they bring him into police headquarters, I guess, or whatever. Sure. And his boss, Bryant, shows him. There's this big video wall and shows him videos of each of the replicants along with their dossier and their name and NCEP yeah. dates and all of so this So they know stuff. what they look like, yeah. And the, yeah, and Brian is telling them, is telling him, and then this one's Zora, Beauty and the Beast, oh, she's both. And he's telling him exactly who everybody is. And yeah. here's Roy Batty, here's the leader. Yeah. And the audience around me is going, oh, wow. And I'm going, you had his picture? <laughs> yeah. Yes. You had his picture. And his real name's Leon? <laughs> and he told you his name was Leon? <laughs> <laughs> they wanted but, to be really sure <laughs> what, what's with the 20 questions you look yeah. down at the picture goes that's you blam uh-huh. and, and so i'm sitting there and i'm like well maybe this will make more sense later yeah i don't know but it starts to compile on itself after this there are movies that i love that you can pick apart like this sure it's sometimes it's just the way a movie lands where if you're loving it, if you're digging it, then there's things you'll forgive sometimes. And also the cloaking nature of science fiction being a different world. There are sometimes critical faculties that you would apply to a different story. For me, I was squinting when everybody else around me was wide-eyed, right? If you can get away with it during the movie and people don't ask the question until sometime later, then the chances are, I tend to say, okay, that's fair game. Yeah. yeah. I, I just look at a real world analogy for, yeah. for what's going on. Yeah. 
Tyrell's basically Bill Gates. Right. Or he's, or he's Elon Musk or whatever. Yeah, one of them. He's yeah. at the top of this absolutely giant, mega rich tech company. Yeah. Yep. If Bill Gates knew that this Charles Manson gang was trying to get to him and they'd already killed 24 people and then they killed a cop and they, then they kill Hannibal Chu, the guy who's working on the eyes in the freezing yeah. room, right? And I'm so paranoid that I won't even let my friend Sebastian come up in the elevator without saying, why are you here? What are you doing here? An elevator where the camera, by the way, doesn't show the whole elevator. <laughs> We had those in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in 2019, they all went bad. 2019, yeah. it's dark and in the yeah. But if you're Bill Gates and Charles Manson and his gang have been trying to get to you, and your buddy walks into your apartment after having tricked you into letting him in, and right next to him is Charles Manson, are you going to say, Charles, my friend? Have a seat. Yeah. Let's talk about why I'm not going to help you. Or would you scream and yell, holy F, and run to your panic room and hit an yeah. alarm button, and 90 security guards on the <laughs> floors below you flood the zone and fire at everything in sight until he's dead? So I was sitting there during that scene. When that scene began, I was like, he's going to kill you. Get out of there. He's going to kill you. <laughs> and then later, he gives him a kiss and crushes his head in. It's yeah. Like, this movie, yeah. He's trying to be like the father, right? I mean, because he he's like the inventor of, of these. He is like, yeah, he's yeah. like their dad. Yeah. But, I mean, he can't think he's there to, like, hang out. I mean, he probably is like, <laughs> he's probably like, you know, these guys are going to catch me no matter what. They're already inside. I don't know. I, I feel like he already knew what was coming. Susan? If a replicant ever comes into your home, you run for the panic oh, yeah, room yeah, yeah. while I'm Ben sits down and has a pleasant conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'm not with the guy who's talking. killed 25 people to get to you. <laughs> Harrison Ford. I'm not saying this. Harrison Ford said this about himself. He's a terrible detective. He's a terrible mm. cop. Four times out of four, he gets his gun knocked out of his hand. Yeah. It's true. And somebody else saves his ass. Yeah. And Roy actually saves him, right? <laughs> Roy, Roy saves him, yeah. and Ridley Scott has been maintaining that Deckard is a replicant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he kept doing special editions to kind of push that yeah. idea. Right. And by the way, here's some insider intel. Even if you guys, uh, folks, even if you hate me, here's some insider intel on Blade Runner. Uh, Tony Scott, God rest his soul again, um, directed Deja Vu. Right. Mm -hmm. So many of the people who worked with with him on that, also worked with Ridley, and some of them worked on special editions of Blade Runner. Okay. And when I went in to record the DVD commentary for Deja Vu, my friend Paul Prishman um, was, was one of the fellows who was part of the recording, and he gave me a, a special edition super copy of, of Blade Runner, and I asked him about the whole replicant thing, because one of the things that was added for the special edition was there's a shot where Harrison Ford's eyes glitter briefly yeah like the replica when he's 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 walking rachel out of the room mm -hmm. and both their eyes do the like replicant glitter right and paul told me yeah that was that was a mistake harrison actually caught some of sean's key light <sighs> that's why that shot wasn't in the first version of the movie oh my god Harrison Ford, Deckard wasn't supposed to be a replicant yeah. yet that was an idea that seemed to come to ridley later yeah and Harrison said, I didn't play him as a replicant. And ha Hampton Fancher, who wrote the script, said, it yeah. doesn't make any sense if he's a replicant. Yeah. Is the end of the movie of a robot teaching another robot how to right. be less like a robot? It's, yeah. It's just, well, also, he'd have to be the one replicant that wasn't, didn't have a built-in lifespan, that didn't have right? Because he's thing. been around. Yeah. Would you, would you create a robot? I'm using the, okay, I know it's a replicant, okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm not trying to crap on it when I say yeah. robot. But it, we're talking about something that's not human, okay? That's right. an artificial creation. Yes. Okay, let's going with the replicant theory. Rick Deckard, in order to catch other replicants, they've created a replicant who's not as strong as any of the others. <laughs> they made him uniquely not strong. Yeah. So that any replicant he finds can beat the living crap out of him. <laughs> then they gave him his own apartment. 
and an attitude where if they ask him to come in and do his job, he says, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> he doesn't do that. <laughs> like, he can't be a, if he's a replicant, his biggest design flaw ever. Yeah. Let, let's make a, I'm going to build a robot maid that's going to say, no, clean up your own shit. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, what do you think? Well, I mean, so I had not seen this movie for a really long time. And I did have the same thought about the photographs. Like, I didn't have it right away, but I just was like, why would they need to do the test on Leon when they obviously already know who he is? Right. And then I tried to justify in my head, like, well, maybe they're they're copied off of real people on Earth. Like, I don't know. Visually, it's stunning. Like, I feel like, like the work was put into the set design and like the visual feel of the movie. And then there were some plot holes in the script. <laughs> well, it's the thing, the thing about it is, and I know I've been, been, been mm-hmm. having some jollies at the, the, the film's expense. Um, yeah. Okay. The whole thing with the replicants and with the Voight Kampf test was that the film was aspiring to be about more than uh, a cop who has to shoot yes. robots. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, the themes of the the themes of the movie would not live without that. Yes, one of the most pertinent lines of the entire film is when Rachel says, "You ever take that test yourself?" Mm-hmm. You know, right. The place where for me the the gears grind a little bit is that by trying to address that theme with where you're 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 going after these replicants who have already murdered twenty three people. There are plenty of completely fully human beings who have no empathy whatsoever. Yeah. Sure. The, when the cop finds them, he doesn't say, well, first, let me give you a little quiz. Right. Yeah. It's just like, no, that's you. I don't care whether you have any empathy. You killed 23 people. Yeah. You know, uh, you're coming with me. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. So it's, it's one of those things where the most beautiful moments in the film are cooked into the explorations of that theme. Yeah. I'm not saying that, that it would be a better film without those at mm-hmm. all. Those, those are the wonderful things about it. Yeah. And they're so wonderful that they're the reason that people whose critical faculties might have shut on, turned on the way mine did, mm-hmm. will still set them aside because you're telling me a story that's, that's so beautiful, that it speaks to me so much, that I will set that aside. Yeah, exactly. I love 2001 A Space yeah. Odyssey so much that even though it is an indefensible boner that when Floyd is on the moon, suddenly there's gravity in the conference room and he's walking around and you can't blame an audience for going, wait, is this a flashback? Are they back on earth? It's like, no, that day Kubrick decided let's screw the whole gravity thing. Yeah. (laughs) That to me, that's indefensible. But by that point, I so loved the movie that I set it aside. And I hope anybody who's, who wants to kill me over Blade Runner? Can you yeah. hear what I'm saying in that light? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I do love this movie. I love the film noir feeling of it. Yes, you know, um, I love the way that all the the acting in it. Rucker Howard is great in that role of Roy. Um, he's so scary, but so interesting to watch. Um, it's just really, you know, even though we've had some fun with the movie tonight, um, I, I will say this is, is still a great movie, and it. It's just really, really well executed. Yeah. I'd like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Space Jobs. In honor of Blade Runner, we're going to see how well both of you know the professions of well-known sci-fi films. So, Bill, you're going to be playing against Susan. Here are the rules. I'm going to name a job from a sci-fi movie. As soon as you know the movie the job is from, shout out the name of the film. If you are correct, you'll earn a point. However, if you're wrong, the other player will get a chance to guess. I have seven movie jobs for you to identify. The first person named four correctly will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? It is some Life in the Credits merchandise, like a mug or a shirt or a tote bag, something like that. All right, here we go. Are you guys ready to play? Yeah. Okay, your first one, Stormtrooper. It's Star Wars. Absolutely. We're starting off easy. Stormtrooper is from Star Wars. Bill, you're on the board with one point. Number two, Starfleet Captain. Star Trek. Oh, I'm giving to Susan, who had That was just... very close. Yeah, but you started saying star first. Okay, that was close, though. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> I feel like we said it at the same time. So one, it's one to one. One to one. Okay. 
Number three, we're going to get a lot harder now. Okay. All right. Peacekeepers. Farscape. I'm sorry, that's not correct. This, this is movies only. Oh, all right. Um, it's a space job, so it's not Hunger Games. It is Hunger oh, Games. That, that doesn't take place in space. No, not, they don't literally all take place. Oh, okay. That's just the name of the game. <laughs> that's on Earth. Oh, These are okay. Yeah, that was movies. a little... Farscape fans who are listening, Frell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I say he gets half a point for no. that. <laughs> I'm going by all my right. rules. All right. Next one, number four. Jaeger pilot. Uh, Pacific Rim. Yes. Very oh. good, Bill. All right. Okay. So that takes the score uh, two to two. Number five. Fremen Sandrider. Dune. Yes. Very good, Bill. Yeah. That takes you up to three points. One more to win. Number six, War Boy. Is that Mad Max? Yes. Okay. Mad Max is correct. All right. So here's the deal. We got we three, one, three? one left, and it is tied oh up at God. three. Oh, my God. Oh, Lord. All right. Okay. Now, your last space job is, or sci-fi movie job, if you want to be technical, <laughs> is Crew of the Nostromo. Alien. Yes! Oh. Alien is correct. Great job, nice Bill. Nice job. You win. <laughs> Sorry to cheat you out of that sweet mug, Susan, but <laughs> that baby's mine. <laughs> excellent. Well, excellent job, Bill. Before we let you go, you. would you like to plug anything? Well, yes, actually. I'll be at the End of the Road Film Festival in Ely, Minnesota, which I believe is in March. Okay. Uh one or two others. So get your plane tickets, wrap yes. up well, and go to Minnesota to see my eight-minute film. <laughs> and what's and then, the name of the film? Oh, it's called Gunpoint. Perfect. Yeah, and God God willing, we end up talking again, again this time next year. Maybe I'll be telling you to tune in soon for Time Zone on Amazon. Awesome, yes. That would be cool. Very good. Well, thanks for joining us tonight, Bill. This yeah, was this a pleasure. Yeah, this was great. This was really interesting. And it was well, really fun. thank you. Yeah, really fun to hear your take on Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope your audience agrees. <laughs> Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. He might actually be George Michael and I might be other guy from Wham. <laughs> <laughs>